0: Second Peter chapter 1, if you'll open your Bibles there. We'll continue in our study through Second Peter. By way of introduction, as you're making your way there, let me just ask you, how many of you know of Mr. Magoo? How many of you are familiar with Mr. Magoo? Most of y'all. Those of you that don't know, Mr. Magoo is a cartoon character. Uh, and uh, his claim to fame is he's a short, fat, bald man who is profoundly nearsighted. And so the, the cartoon goes through the antics of what happens when you've got this guy who's, who's nearsighted to the point of blindness, who drives the wrong way, walks into traffic, walks off cliffs, things like that. Now it's a cartoon, so what happens is this guy does all these things, but somehow, miraculously, he never gets hurt. You can do that in a cartoon. doesn't work that way in real life. Case in point... Uh, Scott Larson. He was a 43-year-old man uh, who was uh, (laughs) Robin banks, um, and uh, the FBI called him Mr. Magoo because he sort of fit the the description. He was short, fat, but he wore really thick glasses. Mr. Magoo wouldn't wear glasses, but uh, this, this guy, Scott Larson, wore these thick glasses, so that told him that he was, in fact, nearsighted, and so they named him Mr. Magoo. And like Mr. Magoo, he was lucky But he's not a cartoon, so pretty soon his luck ran out. And so after successfully robbing 12 banks, they finally arrested him, tried him, convicted him. He's now serving time in federal prison. Um, Scott Larson was nearsighted both literally and figuratively. Literally, the man was was nearsighted. Figuratively, he was nearsighted because he ran into a section of trouble, hardship, hard times, and he thought he could solve his problems by... Breaking the law and robbing banks, um, and uh, he couldn't see past his problems. You say, "Well, what's all this got to do with Second Peter chapter one?" Well, we've been looking at this, and basically, Peter in the introduction, he's saying Christians ought to grow up. That's his big idea. That that just as physically we have to grow up and mature, and and we have to add things to our lives. In the growing up process, you you know have to add a job, an education. You got to add some responsibilities. Got to move out of mom and dad's house. All of these things necessary to grow up uh, physically. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. That there's things that we need to add to our faith: virtue, knowledge, self control, and so on. We've been looking at that, Um, and Peter concludes the thought here in verse eight, where he says this: He says, "For if these things." Uh, are yours, speaking of virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, and the like. He says, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is, and here's the word, short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, that word short-sighted in the Greek, we get the word myopic. Myopic. From this, uh, That's a medical term for nearsightedness. And like Mr. Magoo, uh, the problem with being nearsighted is that you don't see the dangers coming down the road until it's too late. And, and, and so the, 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 the idea there is that you fail to take the long view of life. G. Campbell Morgan talking about this kind of a man, he says, such a man sees the th- things of time And fails to discern those of eternity. So the question then is, what best describes your life? This morning, right now, where you're at. What describes your life? Are you nearsighted or farsighted? And I'm not talking physically, I'm talking spiritually. Are you nearsighted or farsighted? Are you living your life in constant reaction mode? Because you're, you're, you're living in nearsighted, myopic faith or, or are you living with the bigger picture in mind? And, uh, and so our question then, our working question for the lesson this morning is this. How can you guard against living a nearsighted life? How can you guard against living a nearsighted spiritual life? And if you're taking notes, you can write down Fe- Peter's first point, which is this. You need to live diligently. You wanna, If you want to live a spiritual life that is somewhat better than nearsighted, hey, you have to live diligently. Notice there in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more, here's the word diligent, to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Now that word diligent, if you wanted to circle it, it's, it's the word spoudazo in the Greek. Here's what it means. It means to hasten, to do something with exertion. To hasten to do something with exertion. Now there's two key components to this that we need to look at in that definition. Number one is the verb, hasten, and secondly, it's the noun, exertion. So we'll start with this word, hasten. Uh, It means to act with urgency. That's what this word, hasten, means. To act with urgency. C.S. Lewis, a uh, Christian author, wrote a number of books, and one of the books that he wrote was a, a book uh, called The Screwtape Letters. And the basic premise of this book, it's a fictional book, um, and it's you know, got some different characters in it, and the basic idea is that Satan has some young prodigy that he's trying to train up, and, uh, and so there's this dialogue that takes place in the book. And uh, the dialogue basically is, is Satan talking to some of his demons... And he's saying, hey, what can we do to train wreck people in their faith? What, what can we do just to completely mess with people and bring them down? And so one of his young prodigies, one of these demons, he says, hey, why don't we tell people there's no heaven? Satan's like, no, that's not going to work. What else? Another guy goes, well, hey, how about if we tell them there's no hell? He goes, no, that's not going to work. And a third guy steps up and he says, I'll tell you what, how about this? How about we tell them there's no hurry? He goes, yeah, that'll get the job done. See, Satan would love for you and me to be in that place to where our mindset is. Hey, you know what? There's no hurry. And I run into people all the time. When, when I'm sharing, you know, the gospel, I'll have people who will say to me, eh, you know, whatever, there's, there, there's no hurry. I, and, and basically, here's kind of their life philosophy. So many people, they say, well, you know what? I just want to live like hell. And then when, right before I kick off, uh, then I'll get right with Jesus, and and I'll say the prayer, I'll get my fire insurance, spiritually speaking, and then I'm good. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, but people want it to work that way. Why? Well, because they don't want to surrender their life to the Lord. They're too busy having fun in the sun. And you know, it's been said, sin is pleasurable for a season. The season's always too short. People don't realize the cost of sin, because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life, eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so the the issue here then, to hasten to do something, to act with urgency, hey, we need to act with urgency. Years ago, I took a time management seminar, and one of the disciplines, one of the practices in this seminar was that you were the first part of the, the lesson, hey, list five priorities in your life. What are the top five priorities? And so you can imagine, you know, you think through what's the most important things in my life. And so your kids make that list and your spouse makes that list and, and things like that. Go, okay, these are the big E on the eye chart, you know, priority-wise in my life. These are the things. And they go, okay, now next step in the process, take your schedule over the last two weeks superimpose the one over the other and let's just see where these priorities match up with the use of your time. And it's a very convicting exercise because what you come to find out is that a lot of the times it's these not so important, urgent, urgent things that, it, that come and work their way in. These are the things that rob you of your time to where the, the things that are most important, the priorities, are pushed out of the way. And so the key is to urgently focus, not on the urgent things, but on the priorities. Urgently focus on the priorities, and that's part of being diligent. Well, the second word that's used in the definition of of this Greek word diligent, uh, spudadzo, is to hasten to do something with exertion. That's the, the noun that's used. And it's kind of like love. Love is really a noun, but it's a verb in the sense that it gets its definition in acting it out. And so exertion, we need to act this out. Um, the, the definition of exertion is to expend effort and energy, and therein lies the problem. That's why this is a problem for us in doing this. The single greatest obstacle to living diligently is this idea of exertion. Why? Well, a four-letter word, work. We don't like work, you know, and this is what's necessary for you to live diligently. Hey, you got you to gotta work at it. We've all been watching the Olympics over the last couple of weeks. Michael Phelps and the Gymnastic team and runners and all seeing them just getting gold medal and all that and it's amazing It's it's so awesome to watch these guys. I was watching one guy on facebook. He says i'm inspired by all the swimmers He goes now when I go to the pool i'm doing this, you know (laughs) You know and he's doing all this stuff and then the guy goes in and does a belly flop, you know These guys, Michael Phelps and the rest, who go and compete, it's not like they read in the newspaper, "Oh, the 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 Olympics are next month in Rio." I'd like to go to Rio. I think I'll compete in the Olympics. It don't work that way, right? No, they're putting in for years work and diligent, hard effort, and they're getting up at four o'clock when four o'clock in the morning, when the rest of us are eating bonbons on the couch, Cheetos on the couch. These guys are out training and putting in the work, right? This is what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians. He said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everybody who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so living up to your call and election takes work. It doesn't just happen. It's not like you just let go and let God. No, you have to have a plan. And so I ask you this morning, do you have a plan? And, and, and are you diligent to keep that plan to make your call and election? Sure. Now, we're not talking about salvation. We've settled this. Salvation is, it, Paul or Peter here, he's talking to Christians. He's saying, okay, so you've, you've been born again. Now it's time to grow up. It's time to be a healthy productive member of the house of God, and do your part to add to your faith and to grow up. And so the question is, do you have a plan to make your call in election? Sure. Now, I had a brother in the church recently. Um, he was convicted. He heard this challenge to have a plan. And so he took it upon himself, actually, to, to write uh, the beginnings of a book that he's putting together on how to strategically put together a plan. In fact, I liked it so much, I told him, I, I'd like you to get together with Pastor Jim. I'd like to make this a module um, for tactical leadership. So we're going to do that. It's coming up in the fall, and we'll announce it. Just the strategic implements of how do you make a plan uh, to make your call in election sure. Fantastic stuff. He had an illustration in there. I told him, man, I'm going to steal this illustration. So this morning, I'm going to make good on this, and I'm going to steal his illustration. But here's his illustration. He says, he says, you know, the five freeway runs north and south. And, and if you get on it and you go all the way north, you're going you're to run into the border of Canada. You're going to go into Canada. If you go south, you're, you're going to finish up in Mexico, right? And he says, it doesn't matter at what point you get on the five freeway. If you get on the five freeway going south, eventually, where are you going to wind up? You're going to wind up in Mexico. So if you don't want to go to Mexico, you got to understand what road you're on. You're like, well, what do you got against Mexico? Nothing. You get on going north, and you don't want to go to Canada. I mean, who wants to go to Canada anyway? But no, he's kidding. So you get on north going to Canada, you're going to wind up in Canada. So if you don't want to finish up there, what do you got to find? You got to find an off-ramp. Some of you this morning, you need to find an off-ramp. You have to take a walk with, what road am I on right now? And, and if you continue on this road, where is it going to lead you? Where are you going to finish up? And if you need an off-ramp, you've got to start looking for one. Now, what off-ramps look like? I'll tell you what they look like. They look like a midweek growth group. They look like praying with your wife. They look like reading your Bible on a regular basis. They look like getting plugged into a men's study or a woman's study. These are the off-ramps that you got to start looking for and you have to take if the road you're on is not the road that you you should be on that's going to take you south of the border. So so you you have to consider that. You have to be diligent in that. So guarding against the nearsighted life means number one that we live diligently. Secondly, Peter says, it means that we live reflectively. Reflectively, verse 11, pick it up in context. he says, "So for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth." So First Peter says, "Look, here's the thing. If you are diligent to make your call and election sure, you're going to have this amazing entrance into the kingdom of heaven. F.B. Meyer, in describing this, he says that, you know, in in talking about this this abundant entrance, that what Peter's borrowing from is what was known as the choral entrance. And what the choral entrance was is when you were a Roman soldier and you were victorious in battle and you returned home to your city, then you would be greeted there at the at the entrance to the city by these singers and musicians. And they would just parade you in with, with singing and music. It was just this big parade bringing you into your home city, and, and you would have this mar- this marvelous entrance, this choral entrance, this this abundant entrance into your city. And so what Peter's saying here is that, look, if you're diligent to make your call on election sure, then on the day that you go home to be with the Lord, that you're going to experience this abundant entrance. Well, then uh, Peter says, you know, Uh, he goes on to say that he's not going to be negligent for this reason, for the hope of this abundant entrance. He says he's not going to be negligent to remind us of these things. Part of the victorious Christian life and not living myopically, not living a nearsighted spiritual life, uh, is is that we live not just with an eye out the windshield, but that we also live with an eye on our rearview mirror. We need those reminders. I've noticed on Facebook some of y'all, a lot of y'all actually right now, have kids that have got the driver's permits. And I'm seeing, you know, you posting, watch out, streets of Temeca, you're not safe. The kid's got his learner's permit. And that's a treat, right, teaching your kids how to drive. I, I survived teaching three kids how to drive, um, and, uh, and that's fun. But one of the things you're doing when you're teaching your kids to drive is you're teaching them not just to look ahead, but how to use their mirrors, that's a big thing. Like, hey, what's behind you is important. You might want to look in the mirror and figure out how to use that before you change lanes, that kind of thing. Now, what scientists have discovered when we learn new skills, when we're, when we're applying new skills, that your brain, the way that it's wired, relies heavily on uh, the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia, it's, a, it's like a walnut golf ball kind of sized uh, lumping of cells that sits right in the center of your brain and when you learn new information it goes into the basal ganglia and so what happens then is you know it takes a lot of effort to learn like, I, I've shared this with you before like you're learning to drive a stick shift you know you gotta you gotta learn the gas the clutch the brake you gotta coordinate all that stuff well, that involves your basal ganglia, that it's a lot of work up front learning the information. But then once you learn the information, your brain chunks that information into the, that's actually the scientific term that they use. Um, and so you don't have to, to use so much brain power the next time you do it. But part of that learning behavior, not only is the initial, you know, good, the, the, initial input that you give in learning the skill, but it's that continual input over time as you reflect on the fundamentals and you exercise the fundamentals. Now, we can use the same illustration for sports that, you know, you can have and do have major league baseball players. They make more money than you and I will ever make, right? And what do they do every spring? Spring training. And what do they do at spring training? Spring training. They concentrate on all the stuff that they learned in t-ball as a kid. I mean, it's back to hitting and fielding and how to turn a double play and all of these things that they're, they're going over fundamentals. Why do they do that? Because we can't just be focused on the windshield. we got to be looking in the rearview mirror as well. There has to be this reflectivity in the way that we live our life. It's spiritually speaking, not only the things that we learn and grow, but, but, it's, but it's important that we relearn and that we are reminded of different things. It's been said that repetition is the mother of learning. And so, you know, you read through the Bible. It's not like you learn one principle in the Bible for the very first time, and then you say, I never need to read that again. I never need to know that again. I never need to do that again. No, we, we constantly are reading, learning, being reminded. This is why I always say it's so critically important for us that not only um, do we have the equivalence of the Apostle Paul in our life, but we should also have the equivalence of Timothy's in our lives. Those people that are pouring into us and reminding us that are, that are more seasoned in the faith that can be instructing us. And then we also have those people that are, are less mature than us, those Timothy's that we can be pouring into and we can be reminding them as well. There has to be that inlet. There has to be that outlet and there has to be that continual reminder. And so Peter, making his point, he says, look, you 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 have to to live a life that's not nearsighted. And so first of all, to do that, you live diligently. Secondly, he says you live reflectively. Thirdly, as we continue here, he says that we need to live alertly. Uh, Verse 12, it says, for this reason, Peter says, I'll not be negligent to remind you Always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Hey, you know these things, but reminders, good. Repetition is the mother of learning. Verse 13, he says, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Now, that phrase, to stir you up, you might want to circle that. Nearby, you could write this. You could write, to rouse or to awaken from sleep. That's literally what that phrase means. When he says to stir you up, he's saying, look, i got to wake you up. And we sang this in worship today. Spirit of the living God, come fall afresh on me. Come wake me from my sleep. Why do we sing that? Because we have a tendency to go to sleep. I've shared with you guys a story. Years ago, before I was walking with the Lord, I'm out in the mountains and I'm drunk. And I go, you know, all of a sudden, I black out, I wake up, I'm standing out in the middle of the forest, buck naked, freezing below zero, and I'm freezing, I'm gonna die out there. And obviously, in my drunken stupor, I got out of my tent, I went out, you know, to to relieve myself, and then I woke up, probably because of the cold air. But my first conscious thought is, you're dead, buddy. You don't know where you are. It's pitch black. I have no idea what my tent is. By the grace of God, I find my way back to, to my tent. And ultimately, by the grace of God, I come to surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. No blacking out, no drunken stupors anymore. But what was my problem? I was sleepwalking. We do that every day. Daniel Carlini, he serves in our security ministry. He's, he's a multiple black belt in uh, Krav Maga, and he instructs in you know, law enforcement. He instructs military, you know, who's going around doing this. And he came, ladies, many of you were there a few weeks ago to our ladies' night out. And he gave an instruction on self-defense. And uh, one of the things he talked to the gals about was this idea of situational awareness, and, and basically, hey, you need to be aware of your surroundings. Now, we live in a, in a pretty safe place. So we have a tendency sometimes not to give a mindset, not to give thought to, to our surroundings. We just sort of wander out to our car. The other day, I, was, I my, dropped my phone under my seat, and I was in a parking lot, and I'm like buried in my car, reaching under the seat, and all of a sudden, it crosses my mind, wow, this is a really vulnerable place to be. If somebody came up and wanted to carjack my car right now, but I'm trying to find my phone, so there I'm, I'm, I'm in Temecula. i always going to carjack me or whatever. Not situationally aware at all. See, and so this idea of, hey, man, you need to live alertly. And Peter says, man, I want to stir you up. I want to I wake you from your sleep. Paul says the same thing to the Ephesians. He says, awake you who sleep, Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly. It means you're walking with your head on a swivel. You're situationally aware. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now I want you to notice here, how does Peter say that we are awakened from our sleep? What is it that wakes us up from our sleep? It's through regular reminding is what he says. It's through regular reminding. Kind of a nod to our last point. That if if we will be regularly reminded, then we will be situationally aware, we won't be sleepwalking through life. My son Scotty, you know, in in the Hollywood film industry growing up. And we would travel all over the country and he would be doing stuff. We'd stay in different hotels and he's working on a project. And whenever we would go into a hotel, because of my background, you know, in fire safety, I would we would go there and I would tell the kids, okay here's our room, where's the exit? The exit's right over there, Dad. Okay, how many doors between our room and the exit? And I'd have him count the doors. Why? Well, I would explain to him, look, if, if, this, if this thing catches fire in the middle of the night and you walk out and the hallway's filled with smoke, I want you just, abs- you know, crawling on the ground to be able to count the doors knowing where the exit is and so you can get out of there. You go, well, that's kind of extreme. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Like three or four times when we stayed in hotels, the fire alarm would go off in the middle of the night. And so I, we knew right where the exit was and, and I would have the kids put their shoes right at the side of the bed so that if, if they make sure when you get in bed your shoes are right at the side of the bed so you can get it and it came in handy. Now I have to admit one time we were in Toronto, Canada and we we're on the 22nd floor, or the 34th floor, some ungodly height and, and it's the only room we could get. I don't like being that high. But um, the fire alarm went off at three o'clock in the morning. And we walk out. There's no smoke out in the hallway. I'm like, we're taking the elevator. <laughs> I'm not taking the stairs. And you're not supposed to do, but I wasn't, the, I wasn't taking the stairs. But anyway, this idea of living alertly. And, uh, and so guarding against the nearsighted life, living diligently, living reflectively, living alertly. And fourthly, Peter says, hey, we got to live expectantly. He says in verse 13, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing, verse 14, that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Peter here, basically he's saying, look, i got to put off my tent. You ever, any of you ever stay in a tent? You can't stay in a tent? Okay. It's, it's fun for, for a while, Right? But you're not looking. You're not looking to invest in the thing, right? After after a few days, after a week, you want to go home to your permanent house. You want a hot shower. You know, you want to. You, you're not. You know, in the tent, going, oh, this is great. I think we'll blow out this wall and uh, you know, let's. You know, we'll go down to Ethan Allen and pick out a nice couch to go right here. And you know, I, I don't like the way that leather chair looks. Let's move. I mean, it's a tent, right? Tents by definition are temporary. You're not going to waste investing in fixing up your tent. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew's gospel. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, Peter is saying this, but he's saying more than this, because if if you see the word that he uses there, he says, i got to put off this tent. Well, if you want to circle that nearby, you could write the word tabernacle. That's what he's saying. Now, tabernacle means tent, but it means more than that. Uh, Jesus, or uh, John said of Jesus in John 1.14, he said, and the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacled. That Jesus left the splendor of heaven, his permanent home, and he came and he pitched his tent here with us. He put on an earthly tent, meaning his, his physical body, just as you and I live in an earthly tent, but it's not meant to be our permanent home. Heaven is meant to be our permanent home. And so the Word became flesh, tabernacled among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now Jesus came, took on flesh, embodied an earthly tent, just as we do. And what's His whole point? He came to pour into us. He came to love us. He came to to lead us, to teach us, and to point us to our permanent heavenly home. Everything He did, He did in light of eternity, of our permanent heavenly home, to point us there. And that's how you and I are supposed to live. We're supposed to live in this way. And so what Peter says here is, look, that's my soon destiny, and that's the example I'm going to set. Now, how, do, how does Peter know this? Well, we can assume that the Spirit just, sh- you know, showed him, hey, you know what, you're, you're nearing the end of your life. And and so this this is you know knock knock who's there and not you pretty soon kind of thing. I mean God showed Peter that this is the direction that he was going. But but even if it's not that way, look James says life is like a vapor. You're here for a little while, and you're gone. So so for all of us, this is a healthy mindset to go. Look, if my life is temporary at best. If I'm going to have an unhealthy focus on this physical life and this physical world, it's the spiritual equivalent of rearranging furniture on the deck of the Titanic because this sucker's going down. Um, and, and you're taking on water and you're, you're, you're going down. So, so the point here, look, we gotta understand. That, that just as Jesus embodied an earthly tent for for a specific purpose and a set period of time, so also you and I embody this earthly tent for a specific purpose and a set period of time. And Peter's point is saying here, man, I got I to gotta make hay while the sun is shining. I, I, I got I to gotta hit this thing as hard as I can because, because the clock is ticking and, and I'm going to be out of here pretty quick. So, so I got I to do everything that I, that I can possibly do. So that, that, this is his point. Now, as I read about him saying, hey, I got to put off this tent. I got to put off this tabernacle. My mind goes to thinking about the earthly tabernacle through Israel's wanderings. You think about Israel as they were wandering in the desert, coming from Egypt into the promised land. And there as they went, they carried with them the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place where they would go to worship God. And it was set up with specific furniture and it was set up in a certain way and in there there was the Holy of Holies and this is where they went to worship God. And they would go in and they would make their sacrifices. And the point here is this, that while their situation was temporary, they had a means and a mechanism by the tabernacle through which they would worship God and they would sacrifice to God. And the same thing is true for you and me. That our life is temporary, but God wants us to worship Him. And our hearts are the tabernacle of God. That, that God, when we, when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, He comes to live inside of us and take residence in us. And so the way that we live our lives is an act of worship. This is why we have you know incorporated our, our giving into the middle of our worship service because it's part of an ongoing life, of our whole life. Of It's an act of worship. And so we give our tithes and offerings in the middle of worship because, hey, God, it's not just singing that's worship. It's my giving to you that's worship. It's a, how I live and, and take in the word and walking out these doors and putting feet on my faith. It's all an act of worship. And, and so we, we don't compartmentalize our life. Rather, you know, as, as Peter is exhorting, we say, no, I'm not going to live nearsighted in my faith, but I'm going to have a longer view of my faith and I'm going to grow in all of these different areas. And so, you know, I can worship God in my tent. I can bring Him My sacrifice of praise. And so, guarding against the nearsighted life, it means that we live diligently. It means that we live reflectively. It means that we live alertly. It means that we live expectantly. And fifthly and finally, and we close on this point, it means that we leave a legacy. We leave a legacy. Verse 15, Peter says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things. After my decease, Peter's saying, "Look, I, I'm checking out. I'm, I'm going to be going away, and so I want to make sure that I leave a legacy." My question for you is, "Are you leaving a legacy?" And 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 I guess I would expand on it and say this: that you're going to leave a legacy. The question is, what kind of legacy are you going to leave? You're going to leave a good legacy or a bad legacy? One of the things that I do as a pastor, and um, it's one of the things I'm I'm very grateful for because it, it represents those very few moments in life where there is a great window of opportunity that's opened, and that is I do funerals. And in doing a funeral, it is a great window of opportunity because what happens universally when you have a funeral is that when the people come to the funeral they have to come face-to-face with their own mortality, something we like to conveniently not look at. But the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. You and I are going to face judgment. If, If you are outside of a saving faith in Christ, if you have never Received Christ as Lord and Savior. Because the Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So if if you have never recognized the good news of the gospel, that's the bad news, but the good news portion is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place, that he rose again on the third day conquering Satan's sin and death, and if you'll believe that, and if you'll receive that gift by faith, you'll be saved. Okay, so, so if by that definition you're saved, well then you're not going to go to, the Bible calls it the great white throne judgment, that's where the people go who haven't received Christ, and then what happens there is you're going to be judged by your works, you don't want to be judged by your works, because your righteousness, your works is as filthy rags to God. On your best day, you're still a blow it, loser savior, it's not enough, you can't get there from here. But, but if you've received Christ, then you go to the Lord, you stand before the Lord, you're cleansed from your sin, you're not going to go to the great white throne judgment. Where will you go? You will go to a place called the judgment seat of Christ. And what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ for Christians is that we're in. The, the issue of our salvation isn't being judged. What's being judged is our reward. Your works will be judged, not for righteousness, but as to reward. In other words, okay, you're in heaven, but what did you do with your life? Are you going to have this coral entrance into heaven because you've been faithful to live your life? And all your works are going to go through the fire of judgment, and out the other side, what you're hoping for is that it comes through gold and silver and precious stones. But what the Bible says is that there's going to be many go up there, and their works are, you know, wood, hay, and stubble. And what happens to wood, hay, and stubble when it goes through the fire It's consumed, it's burned up. And there's gonna be many people that get into heaven and they're gonna be like, hey, thanks for my salvation and I got nothing to show for my life. And God in his graciousness and his goodness, you go, man, I'm in heaven, cool. Yeah, but as his children, there's there's this deal that, man, he wants us to leave some sort of a legacy. And so getting back to this idea of doing a funeral, man, when you go to a funeral, there you are, And you hear things that are being said about a person. Now, sometimes they make them out to be a saint, and you leave the funeral. You're like, I have no idea whose funeral I was at, but I was not at John's funeral. I didn't know that guy. Right? That happens sometimes. But usually, what happens is that as the life, the guy's life is shared, what begins to happen in your heart is you begin to start thinking, "Gee whiz, I ate with this guy. I, 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 hung out with this guy. Like we knew each other, and now he's gone." And, and so, wow, man, I, someday I'm going to be gone. What are, what are gonna, people going to say about me when I'm gone? What, what's going to be, you know, my reward when I go to before the Lord? What's, what's it going to be like for me as I go through the judgment seat of Christ? And here's the question, is your life going to count or not? When I, when I put a funeral service together, I like to sit down with the family. And I I like to, you know, just tell me everything, you know, that's going on here. And as you might imagine, this is especially important if I didn't know the person, because I've got nothing to go by, so I need to know. You tell me what's happening here, what this person was all about. And I just have to tell you sometimes, and I can think of one funeral in particular. It was tragic. This person, they, they had nothing. I had to, like, pull a rabbit out of a hat trying to, to officiate their funeral. Why? Well, because they lived such a zero life, they had no legacy whatsoever. They, their life was just a series of game shows and sitting on the couch doing nothing. I, I ask you, what's your legacy going to be when you stand before the Lord? Because what Peter's saying here is, look, some people live in nearsighted. Some people have good perspective on life. And he's saying, for you, for me, we need to keep that in mind. And we need to make sure that we're adding to our life those things that are going to help us, hey, live diligently, live reflectively, live alertly, live expectantly. And then in the end, we leave a legacy.